Hello and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of June 9th, tipping the scales. As we approach what will likely be a more volatile market environment in July and August, Dan Belton and I discuss the factors that we think are most likely to drive credit spreads over the next three months. Finally, we conclude with an update on the LIBOR transition after some meaningful headlines on both Sofer and Bisbee in the past few weeks. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Well, Dan, typically we start all of our podcasts off with a little update on how credit has moved in the time since our last recording, but don't really want to do that today. It's just a continuation of the same thing, range-bound trading. You know, most recent numbers show a two-month range of only eight basis points. That's the narrowest range in a two-month span since 2017. And I think we spent plenty of time covering the drivers of that range. And our view is that that range will likely continue to prevail uh, over the remainder of June. But with today's episode, instead of focusing on the range, I'd prefer to look a little further and look at the market environment in July and August when we expect economic data to become more meaningful and and hopefully leading to a more volatile market and look at what factors can drive spreads either narrower or wider to try and come up with a view on how to best position ourselves ahead of that time frame. And with that in mind, Dan, I'd like to start with a little discussion on what could drive spreads narrower. And to begin that conversation, I think it's worth noting that even though we've been in a very narrow range for the past couple of months, that range has been at the very narrow end of historical levels on the credit spread index. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, spreads reached and maybe even got slightly through post-crisis lows of 84 basis points on the Bloomberg Barclays Index. And to find levels narrower than that, you have to go back to 2007 when spreads got to all-time lows of 75 basis points. So when you look at absolute spread levels, one has to wonder that given where we are, is there even much potential for further narrowing? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think like we've been saying for weeks and if not months now, any further substantial narrowing is going to require more economic clarity. But if you look at this from an RV perspective, you can come up with a case for spreads trading sustainably narrower once we get that clarity. So to put some context around those numbers you just gave, back in 2018, the last time that spreads were really at this 84, 85 basis point level in the Bloomberg Barclays Index, 10-year Treasury yields were trading at 280 basis points. So that 84 basis point spread represents about a 30% yield enhancement over 10-year Treasuries. Currently, spreads in the realm of 85 basis points in the Bloomberg Barclays Index represent about a 56% yield enhancement today. So compared to Treasuries, spreads are actually significantly more attractive today than they were back in 2018, despite being at the same outright spread level. And so if you were to apply that 30% yield enhancement that was at play in 2018, that would imply spreads of about 50 basis points in the Bloomberg Barclays Index, another 35 or so basis points narrower than they are today. Now, I don't think we're going to get to those levels at any point in this cycle, but it's worth highlighting that because of the low treasury yield environment we're in today, we could see spreads move narrower than they have been in the past, just given the context. And 
And this has been particularly relevant this week as we've seen treasuries rally without a really clear catalyst and currently sitting under 150 despite looming heavy treasury supply and tomorrow's important CPI print. And I think tomorrow's CPI print is actually a good segue to another important factor that could influence credit spreads narrower here. And that is the quote unquote Goldilocks economic recovery that you sort of just described while talking about the relative value in credit. Because I agree with you, with treasury yields where they are now, if rates are going to stay very low like this, you could definitely see spreads move much narrower as investors increasingly reach for any incremental yield. But a prerequisite to that environment is that we have treasury yields staying very low, that there's not some inflationary scare that would preempt the Fed to begin their tapering slash tightening campaign earlier than the market currently expects, but that the economic recovery is also robust enough to prevent a sort of flight to quality and an increase in downgrade default fears if the economic recovery is proving slower than the market's anticipating. And I think what we've seen in the economic data so far is that exact scenario play out. I mean, looking at the NFP print specifically, the last three prints, we had a really, really big number, a really, really disappointing number, And then last week's number was really middle of the road, slightly lower than expectations, but could hardly be described as bad. And so from at least an employment standpoint, we've taken three steps along that Goldilocks scenario. Tomorrow's CPI print is going to be another major indicator of that. We had a really, really large inflation print last time. What's tomorrow's going to look like? If we have maybe a disappointing number, I'd argue even a number that's in line with expectations at 0.5% growth month over month, while that may sound large, that likely is another piece of evidence in favor of the idea that inflation is going to prove transitory. So you know, really looking at tomorrow's number, as long as we don't get a, you know, really, really high number tomorrow, I think that Goldilocks scenario remains intact. And it's becoming increasingly easy to look at the path of yields and the path of spreads and sort of see that Goldilocks scenario playing out that could drive spreads narrower. Of course, on the other hand, transitioning now to talk a bit about some of the factors that could push spreads wider in the next few months, you can look at that same economic scenario and just sort of turn it on its head and argue for their side of the coin. So, you know, The argument you talked about that could drive spreads narrower, significant relative value compared to treasuries, compared to previous points of the cycle where we reach these absolute spread levels. But I'd also call to attention the point in the economic cycle that those local lows are reaching credit spreads. You mentioned 2018 and before that, 2007. Well, both of those environments were late in the economic cycle where treasury yields were theoretically reaching highs. And if the expectation was that yields would then go lower from there, you had a strong yield grab as investors tried to maximize return ahead of what is expected to be a lower yield environment. And that's what we saw in 07 and in 2018. Yields quickly fell in the Fed embarked on cutting campaigns not long after both scenarios. That's not the environment we're in right now. Uh, Clearly, the Fed is nowhere near cutting rates again. We are on the brink of what we hope and expect to be a strong economic recovery. So we have a differentiation there just in in terms of point of the economic cycle. And it could be that we're reaching this point of over-exuberance regarding the economic recovery. We actually saw a very similar point in the recovery from the 2008 crisis, which for many reasons is the most comparable to the recovery from the pandemic. We have a chart in our written work that we'd recommend taking a look at. It's a bit tough to describe verbally. But if you look at a chart of the recovering credit spreads in both the 08 cycle and the current cycle on a percentage basis, so a percentage of the departure point in spreads 
you know, both cycles show a recovery of over 300%. So what that means numerically is credit spreads were trading around 90 basis points in February of 2020 before spiking around 400 basis points. So that recovery from 400 back down to current levels around 85 is approximately 350% of the departure point, that 90 basis points. And you see a similar recovery in both scenarios. But what I want to draw your attention to is that in 2008, we reached a point not long after the financial crisis where spreads got to to lows when they'd recovered about 325% before some of the optimism surrounding the economic recovery started to fade. And we saw widening in credit spreads. And even though that widening was ultimately retraced, that low point in spreads was never meaningfully breached ahead of the next stress market environment in the European sovereign debt crisis in 2011 and 12. So we reached a point of exuberance just before you know the economic data, quote unquote, started to matter, where spreads were never again able to breach that point. And we could be at a similar point in the economic recovery here from the pandemic. So that's one factor that I think could certainly influence credit spreads wider over the next three months. And the second one could be the path of monetary policy. Certainly, we've talked a lot about tapering. But in the time since our last recording, we had a fairly major announcement from the Fed that they were going to sell their corporate holdings in the secondary market corporate credit facility. And this announcement comes as a bit of a surprise to the market, which was likely expecting the Fed to hold at least its corporate securities, not the ETFs, obviously, because they don't mature, but the corporate securities to maturity. The Fed had hinted that. That's what the Fed has always done. There hasn't been active selling by the Fed yet. So it comes as a bit of a surprise. Dan, do you think that the SMCCF announcement has any realistic impact on credit spreads? You know, as a base case, I think it probably doesn't, but there's definitely the scenario in which it does. We've been talking a lot since the Fed installed that facility at the end of March of last year about how this can structurally change the risk reward profile for credit spreads. So this facility is undoubtedly one of the main reasons for this relentless rally in credit we've seen from when spreads hit touched around 400 basis points in March of 2020 on the day that this facility was announced to about 90 basis points in the ice Bamel index uh, around today. And this facility had such a major impact, despite not really purchasing any real quantity of securities. It really only bought about $14 billion worth of securities in the entirety of its operation. But what it did was it signaled to the market that the Fed would be willing to buy corporate credit as a sort of backstop. So if the market accepts this at face value, that the Fed is going to step in and backstop corporate debt before it allows a widespread wave of defaults, then credit spreads should inherently have a structurally lower credit premium. Now, the Fed's announcement that it's going to sell these could and likely is designed to represent a sort of reversal of its intention to stand as this backstop. So if the market does interpret this announcement in that manner, then it is possible that this would lead to structurally wider credit spreads. But I don't necessarily think that that's going to be the case. Uh, The Fed, even in its announcement that it was going to be selling these securities, extolled the virtues of this facility, attributing it to restoring market functioning during a time of significant stress. And I think if the Fed were faced with another similar scenario of a massive exogenous shock to the economy that was threatening corporate profitability and ultimately corporate credit, uh, the Fed would likely do something similar in the future. Yeah, I agree with you, Dan. I think in their announcement, they described it as, quote unquote, vital to market functioning. So I don't think that this changes the perception of the Fed's likelihood of providing a backstop. I haven't heard that from anybody anecdotally. I don't think anyone's concerned with that. For better or for worse, the Fed's in the credit markets now, and I think that's that's here to stay. Obviously, mechanically, the asset sales won't have any impact on spreads. We're talking about, you said, 13 billion, 0.2% of the outstanding broad IG market index. So obviously, no impact there. 
But I want to highlight one sort of sneaky way that this could put upward pressure on credit spreads, and that is the degree to which the, the Fed's announcement accelerates borrower issuance plans. So we've heard some anecdotes that after the Fed's decision, corporate treasurers maybe got a little less certain about the near-term stability in credit spreads and pulled forward some issuance plans for fear that the market environment may not be as supportive later in the year. And if the announcement from the Fed on the SMCCF does bring about heavier supply in the near term, that could potentially weigh on spreads. Dan, have you seen any evidence that the SMCCF announcement could potentially be driving heavier supply? Yeah, it's hard to say with certainty, but it does seem like it's definitely possible given the issuance patterns we've seen lately. We saw a rare Friday issuance uh, just a couple days after the announcement, and then Monday was extremely heavy. We saw $22 billion in supply. So I think it's possible that that's at least somewhat attributable to the uh, uncertainty that the SMCCF sales are bringing. But even if it's not attributable to SMCCF, corporate supply is inarguably remaining quite heavy compared to years past, excluding last year, of course, and the obvious impact from the pandemic. Uh, Aside from last year, we're on pace for a record year in corporate supply. And there are a few drivers of that that I think could lead to technicals continuing to weigh on the market in addition to the SMCCF. And one of those factors is SLR uncertainty. We continue to see corporate supply very heavily tilted in favor of financials. In fact, if you look at the share of financial supply in all of 2020, and then you look at the share of financial supply in 2021, we've seen a growth of 13 percentage points, which is far away the largest growth of any sector. And to put it in context, the second largest growing sector, uh, communications, is up just 1.7%. So clearly, financial supply is very, very heavy here. And I think we know the two main drivers behind that. The first is just opportunistic funding, given where yields are right now. But the second one is this ongoing uncertainty surrounding the SLR, where the Fed has been basically silent on the matter since March when their temporary exemption of reserves and treasuries expired, but they hinted strongly at a more permanent rule that we haven't heard anything about. Uh, And with banks sort of stuck in limbo here, supply remains heavy as they continue to fund reserve and treasury portfolios that may ultimately be excluded from leverage calculations. We have a Fed meeting next week. We have no idea if that means that an announcement is any more or less likely than any other time, but it provides at least some milestone that we might get at least some commentary on the matter, if not a rule. In fact, Vice Chair Quarles recently sort of hinted that more relief was coming from a leverage perspective. So hopefully we'll know more on that. But at least in the near term, financial supply could remain very heavy. And then the other trend worth talking about is that we have seen corporate supply heavily tilted toward the short end of the curve. Dan, what do you think is driving that? Yes, we've seen front-end rates trading rich basically everywhere you look. Bills are trading around zero. Despite post-financial crisis highs and corporate paper outstanding, LIBOR has been driven down to 12 basis points and seems to be notching lower and lower every day. So given this funding profile, it makes sense that corporate issuers are terming in their debt. This has been a trend that we've seen for most of this year, even before front-end rates generally became extremely low. And I think it's also in part a reaction to the amount of terming out of debt that we saw last year. I think a lot of that terming out of issuance has already been done. And there's just better, from an RV perspective, better opportunities in the front end of the curve for corporate borrowers. Yeah, and certainly demand for their paper can't hurt. I mean, we've all seen the headlines on the usage of the overnight RRP facility approaching $500 billion here. There's just so much cash at the short end looking for a home. And it's maybe no surprise that in addition to heavy corporate bond issuance, uh, money market products like corp commercial paper in the Fed's data series is at post-crisis highs now and highs since the, the really the industry changed following the financial crisis. So as investors continue to be pushed further out both the credit and interest rate curves by the glut of cash at the short end, corporate supply 
will likely remain heavily tilted toward the short end. And in this environment, perhaps it's not surprising to see that credit spread curves have flattened to near their narrowest levels since 2017. The only time we had meaningfully flatter levels was in that yield reach environment in the 2013, 2014, 2015. It was flatter, uh, but again, a very different environment back then. So, you know, to kind of bring all the conversation to a head here, we talked about some factors that could lead to spreads narrowing. We talked about some factors that could lead to spreads widening from here. And my view on the outright direction of spreads, I really don't love either at this point. In fact, the trade that I think I like the best is positioning for a steeper spread curve that will really likely perform no matter what ends up happening with the outright direction of spreads. On the other hand, we're certainly expecting corporate supply to start to slow down in the second half of the year. And if that's the case, we should see the short end outperform. We all know the drivers of the oversupply of cash at the short end. That's not going anywhere anytime soon. So if corporate supply starts to dry up and we still see this persistent bid for front-end corporate paper, we should see the short end start to outperform. So that's actually my favorite positioning at the moment. Dan, do you have anything to add there? No, I think to sum it all up, I think it's more likely that spreads break out of this current range, maybe to the narrower side. But the next substantial move, I think, is likely to be wider. If we're talking about a move of 15 basis points or so, I would expect that to be to the wider side. All right. Well, then before wrapping up today, Dan, I just wanted to very briefly talk about the LIBOR transition. We've had some meaningful developments since we last talked about it on the podcast a few months ago. And I think the first one, of course, has been the growth and popularity of Bisbee as a potential alternative reference rate instead of SOFR in the post-LIBOR world. The last time we talked about Bisbee, I think we'd had a recent CD issuance from Bank of America being the only uh, Bisbee-denominated cash product that had yet been issued. But in the time since, we've had two other CDs and then two FRN issues, one from Bank of America and one from U.S. Bank. And in addition, we've seen loan syndications tied to Bisbee. We've had the first couple swaps traded bilaterally tied to Bisbee. So clearly, enthusiasm on Bisbee continues to grow. We've had anecdotally a ton of interest from both issuers and investors on the subject looking to get Bisbee approved, asking plenty of questions about, you know, ultimately which rate will win out, which was the one that I should be focusing on at the moment. And I think the ARC heard the drumbeat around Bisbee, and they made an announcement yesterday that might throw a bit of cold water on it. Yeah, certainly it seems like the ARC's been listening. And it has to be mentioned that, you know, just 11 weeks after the ARC's announcement that it will not be recommending a term rate by the middle of this year, and potentially not recommending a term rate at all this year, in conjunction with the CFTC announcement, the ARC stated that they will be recommending a SOFR term rate very shortly after the July 26th recommendation from the CFTC that interbroker dealers switch over from LIBOR to SOFR. So bottom line is we will be getting a SOFR term rate likely in early August. So I think that has implications for the derivative volumes in the post-LIBOR world between Bisbee and SOFR. Yeah, and the ARC's announcement falls roughly in the timeline that we were expecting. If we were expecting all financial contracts to no longer be tied to LIBOR by the end of the year, we had to see this move in derivatives you know, over the next few months. And the announcement from the ARC and the CFTC just falls right in line on that timeline, really. But now we have the date set in stone, and we approach a really critical period for SOFR derivatives, which right now comprise just, what, 3% or so of total derivative contract volume traded in a notional perspective. Um, we need to see that 
increase significantly in the next few months. And I think by the end of October, the vast majority of derivative contracts need to be tied to SOFR. If they're not, I think that's going to be a very strong comment from the market that SOFR is just not meeting the needs of the financial system if they are willing to wait for the Bisbee derivative infrastructure to be built out. Now, that said, I personally expect SOFR to capture the vast majority of derivative volumes by early Q4, and there just simply isn't enough time for Bisbee to gain a meaningful foothold in the derivative space in 2021. That doesn't mean that Bisbee derivative volumes can't increase in the years ahead. It's just very difficult to think at the moment that you would put all your eggs in that basket. Like The one thing we know is that SOFR is going to be around. SOFR's markets are developed. Everyone's familiar with it now. It's just the, it's the more sure thing from a derivative standpoint this year. That doesn't mean that Bisbee's not going to play a role post-LIBOR. I think particularly in the cash markets, Bisbee will be a popular product. Investors have already demonstrated a demand for the product. And so you could easily see FRNs, loans, things like that tied to Bisbee. The question will then become, and this question likely won't be answered in, until 2022 at the earliest, is how are those Bisbee instruments on the asset side going to be hedged? Are we going to have Bisbee derivatives? Is there going to be an active SOFR Bisbee basis market? If there is, who's going to take the other side of that? There are open questions, but I think as things start to fall into place, it seems likely to me that SOFR is going to be the de facto derivative reference rate, at least for this year, and then we'll see how things develop in 2022 and beyond. And of course, this is a very popular topic and one that we're hearing about a lot recently. So please don't hesitate to reach out to either us or your BMO sales coverage. If you have any further questions or comments on the topic, we'd love to hear them and, uh, and, and talk a bit further directly. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise it constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. 
Emo assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal. 